for being here at Grace. We're glad that you're with us. And, and I know some of you have been out in the community representing Grace uh, with signs and stuff. And so if you just look up at the screens, if, uh, if, one, of these, uh, place, if one of these are yours, then uh, we have a small token of our appreciation for you. We'd like you to, if after the service is over, just go back to the information table and uh, put, give them your name and your address on the back of one of those pictures. And again, just a small token of appreciation. Thanks for representing this key time, uh, especially as the summer ramp, uh, winds down and then the fall ramps up and it's back to school and people start getting into routines. Uh, we want to make sure that people know that Grace is a place that wants to, to welcome them. And so please keep that in mind. We also want you to keep praying about Tiffin, the, the latest thing on that. Is, is really just the timing. Uh, we're looking at next year, which we've always targeted, 2019, although we thought maybe it could be this fall. But uh, we're going to hard launch. Our plans are between February and September, but we don't know yet, and we'll figure that out as we close soon on the property and then figure out what the remodeling will be, how, the timing of the remodeling. And so that's what's in play there. So if you're wondering about that, that's where that's at. And we, we'd appreciate your prayers in keeping us uh, in mind as we figure that out and see how God continues to bless in that area. We're in a series called Blueprint, and Blueprint is really has everything to do with the blueprint for the church. And it's just a series over a book in the Bible called First Timothy. And this is a book that, the first book that Paul wrote to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor in, in a place in modern-day Turkey, a place called Ephesus. And so he is giving him, Paul is giving Timothy the, the architectural design of how the church should be in, as far as its function and what should happen in church and what should be taught at church. And that's what we're looking at because we want to be a New Testament church. We want to do that that same way. And basically, what Paul tells Timothy is this. Get church right because it's a pillar of truth in a culture of deception. And it will help us grow in the most important way. So that, that was a mouthful. But, and there are several uh, paragraphs that we're going to go over. But it, he's saying, get church right, because it's the pillar of truth. We don't often talk about church that way, the pillar of truth, but that's, that's what's said in this text. Get church right, because it, church, is the pillar of truth in a culture of deceit or deception, and it helps us, church helps us grow in the most important way. And the reason he's writing this is because of all the issues in culture. I mean, people are confused. People are confused about gender, sexuality, God, religion, spiritual things. They're confused about truth, morality. I mean, we live in a world now where people argue whether there can even be truth. I was talking to one of our new residents, Wyatt, and who just started this last week, and he was telling me about a... Uh, 
a conversation that he had with a missionary from Europe and how they were talking about, they described the world now in Europe as post-truth. You know, we had post-modernism. You're always wondering about truth, but now post-truth to where you, it's hard to even get people to accept that there is truth, that objective truth even exists. And that's where you hear all this language of people saying, well, what's true for me isn't true for you. And well, I've just made this my truth. Well, that's not real. Truth is objective. And so in this world of confusion, Paul is writing Timothy and saying, in the world, you have to get church right because it's the pillar of truth in a culture of deceit, and it will help you grow in the most important way. So we're going to start off, we're going to jump in right where Tim left off as we go through verse by verse in 1 Timothy, and that is chapter 3, beginning with verse 14. So if you turn there, if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one on the chair rack in front of you. It's page 1188 in that Bible, that hardbound Bible, or turn your device on, or turn into your own Bible, And if you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have one, and we are happy to give you one as a gift if after the service you go to the information table and say, hey, I don't own a Bible, we'll give you one, and we'd we'd be happy for you to have it. So, we left off in chapter 3, verse 14, and this is the get church right because it's a pillar of truth, a foundation of truth. Here's what he says, Paul writing Timothy. I'm writing these things to you, this whole purpose of the book. I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. And then this next part is this mystery of godliness, and it seems to be a a song that they sang because it's sort of written in, in a rhyme. It says this, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so that's a body of truth. That's the mystery of Christ. And why is that a mystery? Because it's the mystery because it was revealed at the coming of Christ. In the Old Testament, that was hidden. It was only with the coming of Christ that it it was revealed to us that God would actually come in human flesh and give his life as a ransom to pay for the penalty of our sin that the Old Testament made us very aware of our sin. The New Testament, the coming of Jesus, answered that age-old problem that we have with our sin. So the mystery is Jesus, God revealed in flesh. And then he talks about the church being the pillar and support of the truth. The church is the truth in a confused culture. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about a controversial topic, and there's a few of those in the Bible, and, and people don't like it, and it's, it's countercultural today to talk about things like that, but we're committed to unapologetically preach the truth of God's Word, and we try to do that in, the, in a common language or a language that people that understand, but then when we do that, we let the chips fall and then let God sort it out later. We unapologetically 
preach truth even when it's countercultural to the people around us. That's our job. The rest is God's business. And now he, the term that he uses is pillar and support or pillar and foundation of the truth. The church is the pillar of truth. He may be using that, that word because, as we've mentioned before, in Ephesus, it was known uh, for this temple of Artemis, or the, the Romans would call Diana, uh, a female god that was one of the seven wonders of the world. And this temple that exists in the first, that existed in the first century had 127 pillars, each pillar donated by a king. And it supported this huge roof structure and became one of the seven wonders, a very impressive building. So it could be that Paul's writing with this saying, hey, the church is the pillar of truth, saying you've all seen the 127 impressive pillars that hold up the structure at the temple of Diana. But I'm telling you the church, God's organization, is the one pillar that holds up truth in a world of lies. That's what Paul's saying. That's what he's telling Timothy. And that's what he's telling us. And the most important truth then is really about who God is. And he breaks into this, this ancient song perhaps. But it's basically who God is. First of all, that we know God exists in plurality. God exists one God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Very difficult to understand, but true nonetheless. And that God came to earth in flesh and he made a way for us to be as sinful people to be reconciled to a holy God by dying for our sins. And that's grace alone, meaning we cannot earn it. It's only a gift. Through faith alone, that's the, age, the how we get it, in Christ alone. That's the most important message right there, who God is and how God has made a way for us to be saved called the gospel. And the church, notice he also says, is not only the pillar of truth, but it's the household of the living God. And that he's describing church as family, and, and we very much feel that today, or we should, that coming together as we have given our lives to Christ, as we have realized our sin and asked for forgiveness based only on what Christ has done, we enter into his family, we become adopted into God's family, and then we are brothers and sisters with everyone else in our local community, our, our church here, and around the world who have done the same. We're just sinners saved by grace, and we come as family together in the family of God. And of course, this also reminds us that God is a loving father. And, and in our culture, that, that's very uh, teachable. People like that. It gels. God is a loving father, and he is. But the other side of the truth of who God is, is that he is also a powerful judge who declares that he will judge every sin, every sin. And so we can either stand before God and take that judgment on ourselves, or we can put our faith in Jesus who took his, our sins on him and paid for our sins. So we either pay or we put faith in Jesus because he offers to pay 
Either way, but every sin will be judged by a righteous and holy God. And that our culture does not want to hear. Loving father, yes. Powerful judge, not so great. Just saying that you judge, it has become like like a, a, a bad word in our culture today. We need to get church right I'm going to watch you memorize this before we're done. You need to get church right because it's the pillar of truth in a culture of deceit and helps us grow in the most important way. Remember that because I'm going to test you, all right? So get church right. All right, I'll quit saying that because I'll drive you crazy. But why do we have to get church right? Because we live in a culture of deceit. There's lies all around us. People are confused today, as we mentioned, about God, about morality, about spirituality, about sexuality, gender, truth, all these things. Confusion swirls around our culture. And you have people talking authoritatively about all these topics, and it's not true. Here's how he continues in the next verse, which is now verse 1 of chapter 4. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, and later times, he says it's not the the last days, later times is really describing the church age or the time between the first coming of Christ before the second coming of Christ. We are in later times right now and have been for almost 2,000 years. These are the later times, not the end times. But, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits. We live in a culture of deceit. Deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, he talks about in these latter times, people are going to be deceived and they're going to fall away from the faith. Now, we know from other, many other passages in scripture that that's not talking about true Christians no longer becoming true Christians, because once you're a true Christian, you're always a true Christian. Once you're saved by faith, you're always saved by faith, because you're not doing it, God is. But falling away from the faith, the faith here, faith is used in different ways in Scripture, is talking about the body of truth, that they were attracted to truth, they heard the truth, but these false teachers have come in and distracted them and led them away from the truth, and now they've fallen away from the faith, and they're not believers, they, but, and they've left the body of truth, the faith, that had the ability to save them. And when we, when we think about this, and then and today, we get that there will always be those who are around churches. There will always be those who intellectually grasp the gospel. They intellectually understand the gospel And because of either aptitude or discipline, they live consistent moral lives, but they are not Christians. 
there will always be those who are hanging around church in every age who they live consistent what, by our standards, moral lives, but they're really not believers because they have the aptitude or the discipline to live that way. And, and check, here's what I mean by the aptitude. I'm saying, you, you know how it is uh, with some kids, they're born, as some kids don't have to learn the hard way and some kids do. Have you ever noticed that? So you'll have a child and you'll tell one, and sometimes they're in your same family, you know. You have a child and you tell one child, don't touch the stove because it's hot. And that child will never touch the stove because you said it's hot. And then you'll tell another child in the same family, don't touch the stove because it's hot. And they're like, yeah, we'll see about that. <laughs> you know, and they kind of do their own thing. What I'm, some people are born and they're naturally inclined to follow the rules and to be good and moral. And they are attracted to hang out with other people who try to follow the rules and be good and moral. But some people, just because they have a natural aptitude or they have the natural discipline to do that, they can follow the rules and they can live consistently by our standards, moral lives, but they have no inclination to actually follow God. They have no heart for God. They don't give their lives to God. They, they hang around because it's comfortable and they're around people that they're comfortable with, but they have no heart, no intention, no inclination to actually follow God for God. And you just have to know that. There will always be people like that. Now, please understand, what I'm saying is people can look like Christians and not actually be Christians because they have no heart to follow God. On the flip side of that, there are people who, you know, some people will be sitting here right now and going, wow, okay, Kevin, you just said that some people live pretty moral lives and they're real consistent in their behavior and they're, they're just decent people and those aren't Christians. Well, where does that leave me? Because you don't know what happened to me this weekend. I am struggling with some issues in my life and I have fallen, I have failed, I am jacked up, I am messed up. Well, if, if good people, they're not even believers, where does that leave me? Hey, we all get that true believers can struggle and fall at points in their faith. But if you're sitting here and that's tearing you up, if that's bumming you out, if you're struggling with that because you have this deep desire to follow God and then you messed up and you derailed that somehow and you're trying to get back on the right track and you're broken because of that, hey, we all get that's what believers do because you have a heart that wants to follow God. Now, you got to be careful with that. Because if that want to gets overtaken by habitual sin, you'll, you'll just become calloused. And so we'll talk about that in a minute. But please understand, many just don't want to follow God in life. Even though they may live what looks like a decent life. He also uses some terminology that we're not so uh, familiar with in our everyday talk today. Deceitful spirits. 
and doctrines of demons. He's saying, hey, these lies, this deceit and culture, that's where it originates. And of course, a demon is a fallen angel that, that's, you know, wanting to perpetuate the lies in our culture of the evil one. But it's not them doing the teaching. It's liars, people, false teachers who are tapping into that, who have been influenced. And then they're the ones teaching lies are the, the leaders, the teachers. I remember way back when I was in, in graduate school in seminary in Virginia, um, I was working in the evenings. And uh, one time I was doing dignitary protection, which just means I was at a guy's house. He has a, a big house with a big fence around it. And then to approach that house, there's kind of a bunker with bulletproof glass. And then you make a hard 90 turn to go through the gate. And then you open the gate from inside that pillbox, the shack, what we called it. Anyway, I'm in there. And so it's third shift. That's 11 at night till 7 in the morning. And so about every 15 or 20 minutes, I'm walking around the property. But I'm also cramming for a, a test that I have the next day. And I'm reading a book called Demonology by Unger. And it's a little freaky. And so I'm reading this book, you know, it's like three in the morning and I'll read a little bit and then I'll walk the property, then I'll come back and then I'll read a little bit more and I'll walk the property, come back and read. And after a while, you're reading about demonology. It's a little freaky, you know, it's like, ah. But anyway, another, and I was relatively new on the job and another guy that I worked with, he knew I was new and it was in the middle of the night so he snuck up, he jumped up on the wall, he climbed, and he went on the wall to, to the shack where I was, which had a concrete top to it, and I'm sitting there right next to this window, and I'm reading this book on demonology. And it's like, wow, you know, it's weird stuff, and they're talking about all these things, you know, and the, it's like three in the morning, and the wind's, you know, just like... <laughs> And then he laid down on the roof and he reached down and he had something in his hand and he banged that glass right next to my face. Bam, 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 bam. I about came out of my skin. I mean, I was like, whoa, you know, you know, it's just like, wow, I was, I was freaked. You know, and, and really we, we, we can get into stuff like that. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, uh, we don't have to worry about fallen angels. If we follow Christ, we don't have to worry about any of that, but you just need to know that fallen angels can influence people, especially people who open themselves up to that intentionally. But as believers, we don't worry about any of that. We have Christ. Christ is stronger than all other forces in the world. And again, not something we talk about. And I don't want to freak anybody out or whatever. But anyway, just know that. Just follow Christ. You're okay. You know, do it that way. But these doctrines are are perpetuated by false teachers. Now, in Timothy's day, what they were doing is these false teachers had come into the church, and they were forbidding marriage, and then they were taking everybody back to the dietary, the Jewish dietary laws of the Old Testament. And these are the weird things in the Old Testament where you can eat this and can't eat that. And, can, and sometimes when you talk to people about the Bible, they'll say, oh, you follow the Bible, well, you can't even eat shellfish and say ridiculous things like that. What was happening is in the Old Testament, there were some dietary restrictions that served to keep the Jewish people separate from other cultures in, in, until the Messiah was born, to keep them separate and more focused on God until the Messiah was born. Once Messiah came, then Peter, for example, was told by God, we no longer have these dietary restrictions. And that was recorded for us in the pages of the New Testament. So we don't 
don't have that anymore. There's nothing evil about that. That was just done for a time in history for a specific purpose of keeping one culture different from the other cultures. Got that? So when somebody says something ridiculous to you, like, oh, you follow the Bible, and the Bible tells you that those are societal, a lot of those are societal laws that were just intended to keep Israel distinct from all the cultures around as cultures tend to blend together. So they're saying no marriage, and back to the dietary laws. But we know at this time in history, God had already told Peter, nope, forget the dietary laws now. The Messiah has come. He's, li- he's been born, lived, died, and resurrected, and ascended to heaven. And now we don't have to do that. And marriage, by the way, God's idea, right? One man for one woman for a lifetime. That's how God designed it. And so these are good things that we should receive all food and marriage mainly food, but also connotation marriage, that we should receive thankfully from God. We should receive with gratitude. And then, and Paul's saying, these teachers who are lying to you and doing this, their consciences have been seared as with a branding iron. I actually have a few branding irons that I've collected over the years. As a matter of fact, in, in my house is a piece of wood with both of my grandfather's brands. Okay, so the first one there on the left, that's open A, quarter circle, quarter circle. And then the one on the left is the bar HT. And so those are my two grandfather's brands, and those are the branding irons, not the exact ones, but the same kind of branding irons that make that brand. But when he's... And and actually, my cousin owns the open A quarter circle, quarter circle today. But anyway, and still runs cattle that way. But what he's talking about is not branding as marking. He's talking about branding seared as with a branding iron. And they branded cattle back in those days. They've been doing that for about 4,000 years. But he's talking about that that they have been, their conscience has been seared as with a branding iron, which means... Uh, seared or burnt or cauterized or branded, meaning that, or we would say sometimes, I'll use the term callous, they have been seared against the truth, which means because of that searing, because of that cauterization, because of that callousness, they are no longer tender to the truth of God. Their consciences have been seared. That's what he's talking about. And so we, and, and that's what happens to non-believers, they can perpetuate lies so long that their conscience then becomes over time seared against God's truth. And by the way, I think the same thing can happen to believers on a smaller scale. Sometimes we can get caught up in habitual sin and, and whatever that might be that we do over and over that we know is wrong by God, and the first time we do it, we're devastated, and, and we repent, and we cry out to God for help. And then the second time we do it, we're bummed out, and we ask God for forgiveness. And then, the th- and then over time, all of a sudden, it's not really bothering us that much anymore because we have not truly repented And so now it's just part of our habitual life and our consciences have become seared to us feeling bad about that. We've become calloused against that sin. And and the way to get our tenderness back to God 
And to follow God is to repent of that. Confess it. Hey, I admit it. God, this is wrong. Let me be reminded. Yes, it's still wrong, just like it was the first time I did it. And help me not do it again. That's the repentance part. Maybe even come up with a plan that that you won't. Take action. Our consciences can become seared, no longer tender or responsive to truth. So that's what Paul was dealing with in Timothy's church in Ephesus then. And we have the same thing today. Even in churches, there are lies and people are led astray. Uh, Today, I I think even in the evangelical church, there's a lot of religions, you know, and if they're not, if it's not grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone, then it's wrong. And even in what we call evangelical or Bible-believing churches, there's a lot of errors. Probably the number one error is what used to always be termed as the prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. But that's just this preaching that you hear all the time in our culture that says, hey, God loves you, right? And God wants all of his children, all of his followers to be rich and healthy. Well, no, that's not right. We can ask God for that, and those can be good things. But you want to know why there's so many people who call themselves Christians that are depressed. It's because they come out of these movements, and they're going, but I'm not rich, and I'm not healthy, but God wants me to be. So what's wrong with me? What have I done wrong? Why is God mad at me? No. And this teaching, it's nuts. Think about it. What happened to believers in the New Testament, in the Bible? Well, they were persecuted. Even Paul persecuted believers. And, believer, and then Paul was persecuted as a believer, right? He was stoned, shipwrecked. You know, all these things happened to him. People tried to kill him several times. All the disciples were either murdered or executed, except for one, John, who survived when they tried to kill him, when they tried to execute. He survives, and they exile him to Patmos. All of them die badly, painfully, awfully. These are the foundation of the church. God's not promising us wealth and health as believers. He's promising us salvation, that we will be with him forever, that our sins have been forgiven, and we can have a relationship with a holy and righteous God from now on. That's what he wants for us. And that we become content with the good things that God has given us. It's not everybody's to be rich. And if you're not rich, send in some money. And if you're not healthy, send in some money. That's a lie. But people, and and they won't believe it all, like especially the money part, but they'll start thinking that way. God's never saying that. We've got to get church right. Because it's a pillar of truth in a culture of deceit. And it will help us grow in the most important way. What do I mean by the most important way? Well, let's pick it up in the next verse, verse 11. I'm sorry, verse 6 to 11. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be, okay, this Paul writing Timothy, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, 
constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of sound doctrine which you have been following. But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. What's that? What he just said in verse 8. For bodily discipline is of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That's what the trustworthy statement is. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, verse 10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers, meaning God's offers salvation to everyone, invites everyone into salvation. But it's only the believers who have accepted. And then he says, prescribe and teach these things, which is kind of interesting, prescribe and teach. He's really saying the way we would say it maybe today is preach and teach. Teach is more the information. Preach is the information with the exhortation or the, the, uh, the motivation to say, do it. You know, here's information, act on it, make it happen, make it a part of your life. Don't just absorb information, act on the information, allow that information to change you, transform you into another person. So he says, the wording here, discipline, discipline yourself. Literally, it's like train yourself. It's actually from the Greek work where we get gymnasium, which literally means sweat. I mean, sweat. Sweat yourself. Discipline yourself. Why? For the purpose of godliness. Just like you do physical exercise, he says, which is a good thing, of limited value. Hey, this is even more important. Physical discipline is of little profit. It won't do anything, right? Physical, you can exercise all you want. You can be a rock, and that will not do anything to remove bitterness, anger, resentment, unforgiveness, loneliness, despair, none of that, right? It's just limited. It's, and as you get older, like me, it's even more limited than it used to be. I go to the rec center next door twice a week, and I have been doing this for like, 15 years, I don't know. And now, because I go twice a week, if I miss like three times in a row, which would be like two weeks, I go up there and I go upstairs and kind of work out. It's like I'm starting all over. It's like, wow, what happened? And the older I get, the worse that is. I'm like, wow, man, if I ever missed a month, I'd be like a third grader up there. You know, it's like, wow, what has happened to me? Anybody notice that? Am I the only one? Just... Yeah, just all you old people. I said old people, and then everybody they put, put their hand down. Yeah, as we get older, I'll say it that way, all of a sudden, hey, the limited value that we got from exercise is even more limited. You know, he's saying, hey, exercise is good, but exercise your soul. Discipline, sweat for godliness. 
Discipline yourself in that way. He says, godliness is profitable for all things since it holds a promise for the present life and for the life to come. That's the trustworthy statement. You know, you'll be, you'll be up at the wreck and you guys, you know, a lot of you do this and you, you know what I'm talking about, but you'll be at a place where there's, you know, working out and somebody new will come in. And if it's just a public place like I go to, well, people come in and they don't, you know, they may not, some people, yeah, they've done this before. And some people come and they've never done anything like this before. And you'll watch them and you don't know whether to help them or not, or that's how I am. You know, your first inclination is help them, but then you're thinking, well, you know, they're going to think, who are you? You know, so it's kind of weird, but you feel like saying, uh, that's not the way you use that machine. And excuse me, that's a drinking fountain. That's not a machine. You need to get away from there. You know, but, but you don't, you just kind of let them go and you're kind of looking for an opening kind of a deal. Because they go in there, and then what happens, they'll go in, and they kind of mess around, they'll do this, little of this, little of this, little of this, they leave, they maybe do that three or four times, and then they're gone. And they're discouraged, and they're like, nothing happened, it didn't help. I didn't get sore, nothing. And and you know, we all get that if you're going to do physical exercise, you need to go in with a plan, you know, with some commitment, right? That what am I going to do? Well, I'm going to start doing, you know, uh, these things, and I'm going to try to work on this area, and I'm going to try to be consistent by coming hopefully more than a couple days a week, you know, and try to, and and this is the plan, and I'm going to work this plan and make this happen. Well, that's the way it ought to be spiritually. A lot of people spiritually, it's like they're they're coming in with no plan. And and they're just, and, and then getting discouraged and wondering, you know, what's going on? I'm not really growing. Well, you got to have a plan. You got to be intentional. You need to work the plan. You need to give some effort. You need to sweat a little bit. You need to make it happen. That's what Paul's telling Timothy. So, so how do you do it? How can you make that plan happen? How can you grow in godliness? How can you grow spiritually? Well, a couple of ways. One is private spiritual disciplines. This is kind of what you do by yourself. And that would be, you know, that you have to have some way of intaking the Word of God you know, reading the Bible or listening to the Bible or just taking the Bible in, you need to have a way of talking to God. And I don't mean some rote, memorized little thing that that you do when you get up or when you go to... I'm talking about talking to God throughout the day. Talk to God. Take a walk with God. Tell Him what's going on in your... He already knows, but He wants to hear from you. Take in truth, the Bible... Communicate with God who wants to hear from you. So, and then, you know, the more you pray, if you want, if you've been doing that real good, then then the next step would be like someday maybe do fasting, which is when you want to pray about something really intensely or something real personal or big, then you can skip a meal or two. And while, instead of eating, spend that time more intently on prayer. So spiritual disciplines, that's one way. Those are a little more private. But then the second way is church. Commit to coming to church. Commit to making church a priority. Remember, church is God's idea. This is Jesus' church. And his plan was that we come weekly. That we do church together. And there's a reason that he wants us to come together. Because we, we come together. We encourage each other. We can do more together. We, we come together to, to impact the world. You know, the church is not a, a social, civic kind of organization. It's a movement to impact the world. 
And so we come together to make that happen and make sure it's happening. That's what God wants for us. We're a family that comes together in movement with the purpose of impacting lives all around us and around the world. That's church. Commit to that. And and what's happening in our world today and in our country specifically is that church attendance is dropping. And the most obvious answer for that is, well, less people are attending church. But I think there's a bigger issue at play. And that is not only are less people attending church, but the people who attend church are actually attending church less. What do I mean by that? It's, it used to be 20 years ago if somebody said, yeah, I go to church regularly. Regularly meant they went to church three or four times a month. They were always there. Unless they were on vacation or something, they went to, or somebody was sick, they went to church. That's regular. Now we've noticed that people will say, Oh, yeah, hey, that's my church. Yeah, Grace is my church. I go to, I go to church regularly. Well, how often? What do you mean? Well, I, I go like every other month. I go six times a year. Our culture has shifted where people, they do church and they feel good about doing church. But that God's intent is that we do church weekly. He set aside a day every week for church. I mean, that's what he wants. And there's a reason for that. He's expecting us not only to be involved, but also to use our gifts to impact first to serve the church on the inside. And then together in synergy, we impact the world on the outside. And of course, where that all starts. I'm going to throw out a commercial here. As you heard Kendra maybe say earlier today, there's a a Connect class today. That that serves as our membership. It's just one class. So if you're sitting here and you're not technically a member of Grace, first of all, glad you're here and that's that's okay. But you take the next step. Join because that's what you need to do before you serve. So and what that looks like is today when this service is over, actually in about 11 minutes, that that class is going to start in the classroom right across from the coffee area right behind that waterfall thing, if you've ever noticed that. But it's just, it's in a double room right there. That'll go till the end of third service. So it's just that one hour, it's a little more than an hour, but it'll end when the, roughly when the third service ends. That's, and we'll give you lunch while you're there. I mean, that's sort of, we, we won't force you to do it. We don't even, you won't even automatically become a member. At the end of the class, you, you decide that. But that's also the first step to serving. We've been talking about that because of launching into Tiffin, we're going to need more people, and it's all hands on deck and all that stuff. But first step, right here, connect class, be connected. I think sometimes people get just bogged down in their Christian life and just feel like, wow, I'm just not growing in godliness like I expected, or I don't know what's wrong with me, or maybe I'm broken, or I'm in a rut, or I'm just kind of spinning my wheels, and I'm not even spinning my wheels as fast as I used to. I mean, I'm not going anywhere, and I'm not even trying to go anywhere as much. Just take a step. Church is family. Have you ever noticed young parents, they have a baby, when that baby's around 12 months old, before or later, they take a step. You know, and, and then the whole family, 
they're all zeroed in, right? And, and this little toddler's like hanging on to a, a coffee table or something. And then mommy or daddy's like, come on, you can do it. Come on, come on, come on. And then there's that time where it's maybe one, two, three, step, fall. And then there's rejoicing, right? There's an explosion of joy. Anybody know what I'm talking about? We forget how much God loves us. That's what we were singing about earlier. We forget how much God loves us. Hey, you want to get out of there? Take a step and experience the pleasure of God, the joy that he has in you taking a step toward him. Get out of your rut. Take a step. Because God loves you. And we want you here. Because God says we're family. And, and we don't do that perfectly, and we're trying to figure all that out. But we know that God's brought us together here for a reason. And part of that reason is to help each other and impact the world. And that's what we're trying to do here at Grace. And we want you to be formally part of us if you haven't done that yet. Let's stand together. Father God in heaven, we, we admit to you that we are prone to wander and to go our own way, and we get caught up with everything that's happening in the world around us and the busyness of life, and sometimes you take a back seat, and that's not the way it should be. Lord, help all of us intentionally take steps closer to you this week. And maybe some are ready to take that step right now by just showing up at this class, even though they haven't signed up, that they would just come. We hope they would. And Father, if there's a, one of our brothers or sisters here who's struggling, maybe because something that's happened just this weekend or maybe some sin that's becoming bigger in their life, God, we pray that you would strengthen them and help them, help them to repent turn toward you. Just take a step. That's how it starts. One step toward you. And Father, for those who are with us, our, our friends or maybe family members who are standing here together in this building who don't have a real relationship with you, God, help, help them to know that it's not about deserving it. It's not about what you do. It, it's what about you've, what you've done for us through, through Christ on the cross because none of us deserve it. And Father, we pray that you would draw them to you, that you would draw them to yourself. Lord, help them. Lord, thanks for loving us and help us to remember how much you love us and how we can be seen as a good servant, as you said, just by taking steps toward you. Thank you, Lord. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Get church right because it's the pillar of in a world of and it'll help us grow in the most important way. All right, you're dismissed. Go serve the king who died for you.